Sabrina's story is remarkable. When she was eight months old, the foster home where she was staying caught fire, and there was little that she, as a small infant, could do for herself. She had to be literally handed out the window of the house by another child. She came to stay with with my family, I was six, as a foster child right after that, still smelling of smoke from the fire from which she was delivered. And she lived with us for several months before my family made the decision to adopt her. But this was not easy or automatic. In fact, it took nearly seven years of legal custody hearings for the adoption to be finalized, during which she had court-ordered visits every week to the woman who uh, she called her birth mother, a woman who uh, sadly was addicted to drugs and uh, mentally disturbed, unfit to care for her. So during those seven years of court-ordered visits, she saw what her life could have been like. But the day she was adopted, Sabrina is now my sister, her life, her very identity, was forever changed. She would tell me years later that her entire worldview stemmed from the fact that she was adopted. And this is really the point of the passage in front of us today. J.I. Packer writes in his book, Knowing God, that our understanding of Christianity can never be better than our grasp of adoption. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much they make of being God's child and having him as father. If we would internalize this wonderful truth of our adoption in Christ, if it were the foundation by which we were to approach all of life, then we would be set free from so much devastation, I'm convinced. To say it another way, only when our fundamental identity in this world is that of an adopted child of God, through the work of Jesus Christ, can we experience true freedom. Because this passage shows us that in Christ we are given a new identity, a new freedom, and a new cry. That's my outline for those of you that like to take notes. In Christ we are given first a new identity, a new freedom, and a new cry. So first, a new identity. Something I want to address right off the bat, and that is the masculine, the son language of this passage. Many of you may immediately see this as gender exclusive or sexist, but Paul here is actually making a radically equalizing statement. You see, in this culture, it was only the sons and often only the eldest sons who received an inheritance. And so Paul, who has just written at the end of chapter 3, that in Christ there is no male or female, no Jew or Gentile, no slave or free, for you are all one in Christ Jesus through faith. Paul's not denying that uh, there's distinctions that exist, but what he's doing is making the radical statement that before your class or status, before your ethnicity and before even your gender, there's an identity that is deeper and more real than any other identity that we have. And it's an identity that's given to us by grace so that we can't look down on anyone who's not in our identity category. And this identity is that we are children of God through faith in Jesus, that we are sons of God, that we belong to God. This is what we signify at baptism. I had the privilege uh, about a year and a half ago of uh, baptizing my own son, Liam, as well as uh, Micah. And it, it caused me to think about the fact that, that these little 
children will make many decisions about who they want to be. But what a beautiful thing that before they can speak, their deepest identity as a child of God is already given to them. They've been marked by grace to walk in that identity. So all who are baptized into Christ, Paul says, male and female are sons in that we are heirs so that all the honors and privileges of Jesus, God's Son, are ours by grace. And so in verses 1 and 2, Paul uses the illustration of a son who is the heir of a wealthy family, who in Greek society would have been called the young master. And in this culture, far from spoiling the child, his life would have looked very similar to that of one of the household servants. Until, that is, he had come of age. And then on a day that was fixed, his status would change and he would inherit everything. Well, in the same way, Paul says in verse 3, we were once slaves to the elementary principles of the world. It's a difficult uh, phrase to interpret. It's very broad. Paul, Paul seems to use it to talk both about Jewish believers and Gentile believers in different places. And he probably means to address both here. But we might understand it as the way of the world or the way that this world operates. And the way this world operates, whether Jew or Gentile, is by a mentality of what I do defines who I am. But the gospel, this gospel that Paul's been proclaiming, this gospel that he's astonished that the Galatians are so so easily departing from, the gospel is a fundamental reversal of that. It's who I am, a child of God by His grace, defines what I do. And adoption is a beautiful and a perfect picture of this. Adoptive parents have to continually reinforce to their adopted children that their identity is firmly in place, that their love will not be withdrawn. This is necessary because every adoption comes out of circumstances Uh, that are not the way that things are supposed to be. The death of a parent, or abandonment, or addiction, or extreme poverty. Every adoption, then, is a redemptive response to the brokenness of this world. And adopted children often carry the brokenness and traumatic experiences with them throughout life. There's a film that came out a couple years ago called Lion. A very good film in which... Uh, the main character uh, says to his adopted parents, you weren't just adopting me and my brother, you were adopting our past. And anyone who has been adopted or or has adopted knows this to be true. I've already told you uh, that my family adopted my sister Sabrina. And regardless of what she did, regardless of whether she act as a daughter should act or not, her identity would never change. No matter how many meltdowns she had at the dinner table, how often she lashed out and threw her SpaghettiOs all over the place, my parents would never cease to tell her that she would always be their daughter whom they loved very much. Even if the the brokenness remained forever, it would never change her identity. Likewise, our spiritual adoption that Paul's describing has taken place because things in this world are not the way that they're supposed to be. And like adopted children, we often carry the brokenness of this world with us throughout our lives. 
But if we are adopted in Christ, it will never change our identity. And so in Christ, we are given a new identity. Second, we are given a new freedom. Now, the reason that we carry this world's brokenness with us, the reason the world is broken, the story of Scripture tells us, is because we broke it. In the beginning, God created all things good, all creation sang together in harmony a song of his glory. But then humanity began to sing uh, not only off-key, but a different song altogether. Because what our first parents, Adam and Eve, were doing in their distrust and their rebellion from God was trying to establish an identity apart from their creator. Believing the whispers of the evil one, they believed that this would set them free. But to their horror, they found that they had enslaved themselves. They thought that they would know about good and evil like an oncologist, a cancer doctor, knows cancer. But they found instead that they knew evil like a cancer patient knows cancer. It was inside of them and it would spread to everything. And this slavery of sin would be passed down to every person, this sinful desire to find our identity apart from our Creator and to ultimately reject Him as Father. And so today, one of the most uh, pervasive modern narratives is that you don't belong to anyone or anything except yourself. We hear things all the time on uh, movies and talk shows. I decide for myself what makes me free. I live my own truth. I listen to my inner voice. There's many problems with this. If you have a five-year-old and you tell him that it's time for bed, and he says, you know what, parents? My inner voice is telling me that I should stay up eating Oreos and watching TV until midnight because that's who I am. That's, that's the real me. Well, that's not going to fly, is it? So this narrative may claim to offer freedom, but true freedom is not doing whatever you want. Rather, it's being free to be who you were created to be. This narrative that you don't belong to anyone or anything is also a myth. It's a false narrative. Because we really can't answer the question, who are you, without relation to someone or something else. Modern sociologists have shown that those who seek an identity in and of themselves end up being only slaves to to shifting trends and endless comparisons of themselves to other people, especially through social media. We all derive our identity from something beyond ourselves. As Bob Dylan sang in the 70s, you got to serve somebody. We all have masters or little g gods, as it were. The postmodern writer David Foster Wallace makes this point in what's become a famous commencement speech. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. No such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships something. Everybody taps their meaning in life from something. And if you worship the wrong thing, Wallace says, it will eat you alive. How does this play itself out practically? Let's say that you find your identity in your career. That's a common one. You have success in your career, and so everyone thinks highly of you. And so you naturally build an identity around being successful and respected. It becomes who you are to yourself, how you want to be perceived by others. But with that comes a burden, a pressure to continue to be successful and respected, and a fear an anxiety of losing that. Well, if and when you fail, 
if and when you're, you're disrespected, you'll find that that's when your most uncontrollable emotions will surface. And I know this personally. I find that it's so easy for me to put my identity in my ministry when I unconsciously slip into this way of, of operating I find that I not only want to be seen as a good uh, pastor, planter, preacher, if it's where I'm finding my identity, then I need to be seen this way. And that, then I can't take any criticism, especially from my wife. And when I do this, the burden of writing a sermon can bring so much uh, fear and anxiety over the possibility of preaching a bad sermon that it can be paralyzing. But when I'm conscious that my deepest identity is that of an adopted son of God, a, a father who delights in his child, that I'm set free to enjoy the work that God has called me to do, to glorify and enjoy him forever. And so you see, you belong to that in which you place your identity. It's a myth that you cannot belong to anything. True freedom is found only when we belong to the right master, our loving creator, he who knit us together, the great lover of our souls. And the good news of the gospel is that this God has done everything to bring us home. We see this in verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. We see Jesus' divinity in that he was sent meaning he had pre-existed with the Father and the Spirit. But we also see his humanity in the next phrase, that he was born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. You see, there's nothing that we can do to make up for the offense that we rejected God as our Father and sought to establish an identity apart from him. Jesus' great parable of this is the prodigal son, if you're familiar with the story, what the son was essentially attempting to do was to unsun himself. He was making a total breach with the family. He would have been considered uh, by the family and by the community around them lost and even dead. There's a, a Middle Eastern scholars that would say that they likely carried out his funeral when he left the community. And this is evidenced by the fact that the father later in the story says, my son who was dead is now alive again. Uh, Miroslav Volf writes of the story, the most significant aspect of the story, the prodigal son, is that the father who lets his son depart does not let go of the relationship between them. The eyes that searched for and finally caught sight of the son in the distance tell of a heart that was with the son in the distant country. And he goes on to say, when the son's attempt to unsun himself changed the son's identity, the father had to renegotiate his own identity as a father. And then he runs to him. He embraces him. And in the sheer joy of the father's embrace, the son's identity begins to change once more. The good news, when we gave up on God, he refused to give up on us. God himself took action. He renegotiated his identity. He God came down in the person of Jesus, entered into our suffering, fulfilled the law on our behalf. His perfect life counts in place of our sinful life. 
I have another friend who adopted a little girl after he and his wife had already had children biologically. And he told me that he's often asked, uh, which of the children are yours? He'll be asked this in public places, sometimes church. Which of the children are yours? To which he'll respond, they're all mine. And then sometimes the person will say, no, but you know what I mean. Which of the children are yours? To which he'll say emphatically, the adopted child is mine just as the other children are mine. Don't you see that when we are united to Christ by faith, God the Father looks at us through the perfect record, the perfect righteousness of Jesus, and through his life, death, and resurrection, he says to us, you are mine as Jesus is mine. When we receive adoption as sons, we receive all the honors and privileges as sons, the, the love of God the Father that God the Father has for God the Son from all eternity, the love that spilled over and made the worlds is now the same love that is fully ours as children of God. But for our identity to be changed from that of a slave to that of a son, Jesus' identity had to be changed from that of a son to that of a slave. That's how it's spoken of in Philippians 2, that he who was by nature God emptied himself of all the rights and honors of divine sonship and took on the form of a servant, of a slave. He submitted himself to being identified with sinners that we might be identified with the righteous one. You see how costly was our adoption, how costly was our freedom. So how do we live out of this new freedom of our adoption? Well, Paul is, is moving for, toward this pivotal statement in this book, in Galatians 5, in which he writes, For you were called to freedom, but do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but rather through love serve one another. And he goes on to say, The whole law is fulfilled in one world, one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, when we sin, we turn back to the slavery of our former identity. We turn back to those cruel masters that would enslave us. And Paul's message here is, don't go back to those cruel masters. The wages of sin is death. Why would you continue in it? Remember the cost of your adoption and be who you are. Not who you are by your birth, but who you are by grace, by your second birth, by your adoption. Be who you are in your new identity that has been hard fought and won for you. And as children are called to represent and resemble their parents, so when we love one another, we represent and resemble our father and therefore live out of our identity as sons, showing the world a peculiar and powerful love that we have received from our Father. Are we pursuing uh, the kind of relationships, the kind of loving our neighbor that we have, are called to in intentional, committed ways? In Christ, we are given a new identity, a new freedom, and lastly, a new cry. We see that our adoption was a Trinitarian work of God. God the Father sent God the Son to die for us, verse 4, and God the Holy Spirit to live in us, verse 6. 
And because we are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Our new identity as sons of God is such unbelievably good news that we can't even accept it without the Holy Spirit confirming it internally. And so the Holy Spirit testifies that we are children of God, adopted through Christ, so that our heart's cry is for our Abba, our Dad, our Father. And on this point, you may have never experienced genuinely fatherly love from your earthly father. But your heavenly father is the father that you've always longed for. In order for us to know how deep is the father's love for us, God sends his Holy Spirit as an internal witness. John Stott writes, God the father sent the son that we might have the status of sonship. And he sent the spirit that we might have the experience of sonship. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, we need more than just a propositional knowledge of our new status. We need to know it in our hearts. There's a powerful scene illustrating this in a movie probably 10, 15 years old called Blood Diamond. It's set in Sierra Leone in Africa. It's a story of Solomon Vandy, uh, who's a local fisherman, and his beloved young son, Dia, Uh, who dreams of becoming a doctor. And in the beginning part of the film, you kind of see the sweetness of their father-son relationship. But then the country enters into a civil war, and their village is attacked by rebel forces, and the family gets separated. And Solomon, the father, gets captured by the rebel forces and is, is forced to work in these diamond mines. Dia, the son, also gets captured and is trained to be a child soldier. He and all the other children who are captured are told that their families are dead, that they uh, have a new family now in these rebel forces. They're hardened and made to kill. They're, They're in one sense reprogrammed, renamed. They're given a completely new identity. But Solomon never gives up his search for his son. And there's a diamond trader that he sort of joins forces with that's able to bring him to the camp where his son is and where he'd buried this this enormous diamond. And while they're digging it up with his son nearby, Solomon looks up to see that Dia, his son, is pointing a gun at them, uh, operating out of this new sort of reprogrammed identity that they'd given him. And with all the righteous intensity of a loving father, Solomon says to him, Dia, look at me. What are you doing? You are Dia Vandy of the proud Mende tribe. You are a good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains with your sister and the new baby. I know they made you do bad things, but you are not a bad boy. I am your father who loves you, and you will come home with me and be my son again. And with tears streaming down both of their faces, Dia lowers his gun, and his father draws him into his chest. This is what the Holy Spirit does. Reminds us of our true identity. Draws us again and again to our father's chest, into the very heart of the father. Does this through his word, through prayer, through the sacraments. Tells us that though we have done bad things, though we are sinners, His mercy is more. That doesn't change our identity. That we are sons and we are heirs of grace beyond measure. 
through the sacrificial work of Jesus. We pray with me?